You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Vernacular Podcast for our second book club episode. Yay! This is exciting. I'm excited about this book. I really enjoyed it. It is. And Sally, what do you think this book is called? <laughs> <laughs> well, up until last week, I think, I was calling it A Man Called Ove. And, and I was too. Because <laughs> in the English language, phonetically, O-V-E spells ove. <laughs> and I think I heard some other or people call it ove. If it's the first three letters of oven, but it wasn't in this case. So Yeah, or think, oh. if you think that ove is supposed to rhyme with love because of the back of the book. But anyways, regardless, right. that is not the way you pronounce it because it's Swedish. The back of the book, for people who don't have the benefit of it in front of them, says all you need is of, <laughs> O-V. <laughs> so that makes it that makes me think it's of. But then we uh, got a tip from one of our faithful listeners that they thought it was actually, uh, what was it, o- Ova? Or Uva? I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I don't Uva. quite remember. Well, regardless, we then listened to uh, the author himself talk about this book, and he said it is Uva. So Which is, there I we guess, go, apparently. The Swedish pronunciation. Right. So, a man called Uva. However, I also listened to another podcast talking about this book, and there the podcasters were saying Ove. <laughs> so people are just people are just all over the map on how this is, but we're just going to go with Friedrich Bachmann's pronunciation. Yeah, I think that's the Ova. safest bet. And uh, just a warning that I could get mixed up in this conversation and might revert both. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, it was a, uh, it was a really good book that I enjoyed. Sally, what's your what's your like preliminary assessment of the book? I thought the story was it really captured your attention, and I think thanks in large part to his writing because he just had these short little chapters that had these very descriptive vignettes, and he jumped back and forth between the present and the past, which I wasn't sure I would like, but. I ended up liking that. And he was just really good at keeping you interested in the story and keeping you interested from one chapter to the next. It wasn't like he had all of these little stories that weren't connected to each other, but he would have these cliffhanger endings from one chapter to the next that just made me want to keep reading. And he wrote wonderful characters that I just fell in love with. And I cried at the end of the book. So, you know, that's got to be a good book. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. I also really enjoyed it. And it w- it's in the category of books, and there aren't many of these that I really couldn't put down. And the last time I remember reading a book like that was Father Elijah. And I've talked about Father Elijah on the podcast before. But that was over well over a year ago that I read that one. So it's, it's pretty rare that I find a book like this. But A Man Called Ova <laughs> was one of those books, and I really enjoyed it. Um do to walk through the the summary, kind of give people an idea of the plot line if they haven't read the book or seen the movie. It is a movie, by the way, now. Yeah, okay, you're going to have to help me because it's been a while. But so we are introduced to this character, Uva, and he is an old man. And we don't have a lot of information about him. He, we just know that he lives by himself. And it seems like he was married before. And he lives in this residential community that um, has a lot of 
rules and guidelines. And he used to be on, I guess, the governing board for it. And he has all of these kind of idiosyncrasies about him going out every day to check garbage cans and make sure that everyone's following the rules about where to leave their bicycles. And checking his thermostat twice a day to make sure it hasn't magically gone <laughs> up. Temperature yeah. On him. yeah. Yeah. And um, I think pretty early on, we're introduced to this to the fact that he wants to die, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, exactly. He, no, he, he's uh, trying to find a way to kill himself. Yeah. yeah. He's, he feels like his life is... And he wants is, to do it in a way as... As, inco- as inconvenient for people, or as convenient for people as possible? Yeah. Is that, and he, so he wants to he wants to die in a neat and tidy way to just end his life. And um, yeah, it, it, the first time you find out, it's pretty jarring. It's at the end of a chapter, and the, the author describes basically that this was the day that Ova planned to die, and uh, it's it's a little bit dark and a little bit morbid. But then you eventually understand why he wants to, and it's because he's a widower who's been living without his wife for some time, and he really just has lost the will to live because there's no there's no happiness in his life. There's no sunshine. Yeah, there's no people. There are no people really. He has no friends. Right. He really interacts with no one on a daily basis. And then as the story unfolds, he interacts more and more with his neighbors around him. And you learn more about his past life. And you see these relationships with his neighbors grow. And you see how that affects his demeanor. And And we we won't spoil the end of the book because it's really good. And we encourage you to read it if you haven't already. But yeah, like Sally said, it changes his outlook and it changes his neighbor's outlook and uh, the story wraps up in a very beautiful way. Sally said she cried at the end. I won't claim I cried, but I definitely got a little dusty. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was uh, it was really it was really moving. I guess sad is not quite the right word, but it's very moving ending. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's probably a good summary. We could go into more detail, but I think it's just it's something that's better to be read. But I think one thing that's Sally already mentioned this is the the flashbacks in time. So basically from chapter to chapter, we would spend one chapter in the present and one chapter in the past. And even the, the very beginning of the book was a chapter from the, you know, chronologically from the end of the story, essentially. Oh, that's right. Um, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And it, that, that bow wasn't tied until the very end of the book. So I, like Sally, thought it would be kind of annoying or difficult to keep track of, but I actually found it a really refreshing way to read a book, and it was a really novel way, I thought, to do character development because mm-hmm. you you see Uva and the other characters in the story grow before your eyes over the course of the 270 pages or whatever the book is, and it's very much in part because you learn their history. So, so I think one of the themes here and Sally kind of came up with this in our book notes is don't judge a, a person by their car, by their outward appearance. Because when you're first introduced to Uva, he's a pretty grumpy guy. And you think, wow, this is just a crotchety old man. And he is, he would be a terrible neighbor to have. But then when you start hearing about the story, the life that he's had, you, you really start to empathize with him. And you kind of start to think, wow, I wish he was my grandpa. He's actually a really great guy. Yeah, he's just portrayed at the beginning as, yeah, crotchety and grumpy. Everything is just black and white to him. He has so many routines, and he's just very stuck in his ways. And he just seems to hate modernity, and he's just out of touch with everything. But 
but I think you realize that that's not his real personality, that um, the loss of his wife and his his the loss of friendship and um, I think just the his inability to grieve well at the beginning of the book it, it causes him to act or to kind of default to that per, part of his personality, but that's not his whole personality. And, and that's why you start to fall in love with him because you see that he, he likes to help people and he's willing to inconvenience himself in order to help people. And, um, and he, he really cares about people, even if he doesn't care about the relationship in and of itself. Um, so, and there's so many different instances where he will go out of his way to help a neighbor, um, which is, and yeah, it just makes you, yeah, like you said, fall in love with him. Yeah, totally. Let's uh, let's review the main characters here because it might help people understand the arc of the plotline a little bit. So we have Uva, the main character, the guy who starts out as a crossy old man. We have Sonia, who is his wife, who is now deceased. We have Par- Parvana, I think would be the pronunciation. Beautiful name. I really like the name. But she is an Iranian-born, uh, uh, an Iranian-born neighbor of his, and her husband. I think actually is never named, or is he? He eventually is named, right? Yeah, That's I think the he's one Patrick. Patrick. Yeah. Okay, so Parvana and Patrick are married and live across the street from Uva. Uh, Jimmy, uh, I think, lives next door, and Jimmy's um, a kind of jovial computer nerd. Uh, who doesn't have any basis of a relationship with Uva. And then down the street, a couple houses, I think, are a man called Rune and uh, his wife, Anita. And Rune and Anita are about Uva's age, but Rune has um, dementia or Alzheimer's of some sort. So he has uh, problems remembering things and doesn't really remember being Uva's friend once. But the backstory between Uva and Rune is that they've uh, they've had a significant falling out in the past, and so Uva carries a major grudge against Rune, uh, and presumably Rune would against Uva if he didn't, if he if he remembered that they had had such a, a falling out. And there but, are a few but, other characters that pop up along the way too, but I, I guess these characters probably take up the most time in the story. And well, there's also the cat. I think I would add the oh, cat yeah. is a major character. The cat annoyance. And, and, that's his name. Yeah, the the cat, the annoyance, right? That's the, uh, um, and the cat is an interesting. I don't I don't know what the literary term would be for how the for what the cat serves in the book, but, uh, I I want to say foil, but I don't think that's the right word. But the cat is a a character who helps you see the the faults and. Um, virtues of Uva more clearly just through his interactions with the cat because in all the interactions there's no person there to to witness it it's just Uva and the cat and so you see his virtues when he feeds the cat and you see his frustrations when he gets fed up with the cat but he he never harms the cat and he offers the cat a home and it's, it's you really can see what he's thinking um, because he's talking to the cat right right yeah it's really it's really interesting it's 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 kind of a unique window into the mind of Uva so I think the cat would have to be on the list of major characters and then, um, and you mentioned Arvana this. And- Sorry, just one second. You mentioned this, um, but he he refers to his neighbors and all these other characters who are his neighbors with descriptive t- 
titles like the lanky one or the pregnant one or the cat annoyance or whatever. And, and over time you, you see that he more frequently starts to call them by their actual name. It seems as he gets to know them better throughout the story. So eventually you find out that the lanky one is Patrick and the pregnant one is Parvana and so on and so forth. Right, right. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I, I hadn't thought of that until you bring it up, but that's totally true. That um, Sonia, I think, is always named, but everyone else starts out as... And I think Rune is always named, too, probably because yeah. they have such an intense personal history. But everyone else, yeah, starts out with a descriptor. And some of them I don't think ever get real names. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I think there's some... That I'm pretty he... sure the annoyance is always the annoyance. The yeah, cat. the cat annoyance, yeah. Well, along those lines, with respect to his writing style, um, besides the the names kind of changing along the way, I guess, I don't know if this is his writing style, but each chapter has a... Um, an, an image or a picture, and you pointed this out that I didn't notice um, along the way as I was reading it. I didn't realize at all that the little picture with each chapter um, number relates to the topic or the story of that chapter. So that was kind of a cool, cool aspect of Friedrich Bachmann's style as well. Yeah, and I'm I'm really not sure if that's his style as much as as the publisher. I don't know if the, oh, like the yeah, original that's fair. book in Swedish had that, but it was kind of a charming, a charming way to introduce each chapter because the little image would be different and it would have something relevant from that chapter. So, in the chapter where he fixed the car, there was a little wrench that that opened up the chapter, um, and so it was it was kind of a yeah I guess charming way to introduce to us Ova and all the other characters. I really liked it too. On the on the top of topic of don't judge a book by its cover, I also kind of think that one of the themes of the book is the value of the older generations. Because as I was reading the book, I kept thinking about how Ova is more like my grandfather's than I realized. And neither of my grandfathers are old and crotchety like Ova appears at first. But Ova softens through the book and you see his his character. And I'm thinking, this is in many ways how my grandparents are. They like their certain types of cars. They have their certain hobbies. They have reset ideas about what pets they do and don't like. They they are pretty quick to form opinions of people for better or worse. They're fiercely loyal. They love their wives. They're afraid of new technology. And all of those things are are in some ways virtues, I think, and things that we as a younger generation can learn from. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I think that's a really good point. And maybe even though you said your grandparents aren't, your grandfathers aren't like Uva, you could kind of imagine that maybe they would have the similar tendencies that would lead them to be like Uva if they lost, you know, or when they lose their wives. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There was one quote from Bachman in there where he was describing Uva and Rune, and he said, Men like Uva and Rune were from a generation in which one was what one did, not what one talked about. And I thought that was interesting because our generation seems to be one that likes to talk about what they do or what they want to do. And so there are lots of grand plans for entrepreneurship and startups and all of those things but when it comes to doing work we're not we're not the most industrious generation and we get 
you get knocked a lot for being lazy. But the uh, the generation of Uva and Rune was one in which work hard work itself was a virtue and a virtue with cultivating, even if it wasn't glorious. I mean, Uva cut his teeth in a rail yard doing that, and uh, then as a mechanic. So um, he's he's someone who's totally unafraid of hard work and actually seeks out hard work as a as a way to redeem his time almost and i think i i i really respect that that line a a man or a person is what he or she does not what he or she says or talks about but at the same time i i would want it to also say that you can't do one thing and kind of say the opposite you want them to somehow line up i think it's fine i think in this context it means his actions speak louder than his words so he doesn't need to talk he can just act and that's enough to show his character but yeah but you also don't want someone who's acting one way and then talking a big talk in another way and that would um i guess that would be a knock against his character or her character so so i i mostly agree with that with that idea. Yeah. And I think, I think that the book almost implicitly comes around to that because there's a sharp disconnect between how Uva actually feels and how he expresses himself. Cause he's pretty harsh to his neighbors, at least in the, in the beginning of the book and shuts them out of his life very intentionally, even though that's not actually his, his personality. Um, or I guess it's not entirely his personality. I mean, he's he's always going to be a stubborn, set in his ways man, but he softens significantly as you get to know him. Yeah, and he's he's soft. He's been softer in the past too. You know, I just think this is like one in this beginning portion of the book. It's one slice of his life, and there's so many circumstances that they contributed to him acting in the way that he's acting. You can imagine right. that if Sonia was still living with him, he would not be quite so grumpy and quite so set in his ways because she she definitely balanced him out. And and we see these stories of him in the past of helping people out, like when they were on their vacation together. Right, exactly. And what do you think of the love story between him and Sonia? I I love it. I mean, I think it's it's really sweet. Um, I think, uh, yeah. To to that point about the love story on that podcast where we were listening to Friedrich Bachman, I loved what he said that his book was first and foremost a love story, and mm-hmm. I don't think I really realized that while I was reading it. I mean, that was definitely the common theme throughout, but I I just love that that's what he had in mind going into writing the book that he wanted to first and foremost write a love story. And, and that is my, probably my favorite. Well, I'm not sure if it's my favorite relationship in the book, but they, there were some great quotes that came out of the love story between Ova and, or Uva and Sonia. Oh, you did it. I did it. I, I did it. Happened. I was the first one um, between Uva and Sonia. And I, I mean, you do really do love their relationship. Sometimes I wondered if it was a little unbelievable, like, would Sonia really be that content to live with someone as quiet and grumpy as Uva? But I guess she just knew always that he just really adored her and loved her. And in that way, they balanced each other out or something. But I would think it would be hard to be as as bubbly and talkative and gregarious as she was and to be married to someone like Uva who just seemed to just 
kind of exist with her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, a man of few words. Yeah. If there ever was one. But yeah, I loved I I um turned down a couple pages that I wanted with some quotes that I just thought were so beautiful. Um so one was that people said Uva saw the world in black and white, but she was color, all the color he had. And that was just really a cute way of of um of describing their relationship. And another one I had was um his days passed like this, slow and methodical, and then one morning he saw her. She had brown hair and blue eyes and red shoes and a big yellow clasp in her hair. And then there was no more peace and quiet for Uva. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that dovetails really well with the color comment because she's wearing different colors. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's a really good point. <laughs> um, and I thought that along the lines – um, along those same lines with respect to the love story – Another theme that I thought that Friedrich Bachmann was trying to uh, pull out was that enduring love is not just about what's new and exciting. And there's this great quote from what Sonia said that to love someone is like moving into a house. At first you fall in love and everything is new. You wonder every morning that this is one's own as if they are afraid that somebody will suddenly come tumbling through the door and say that there has been a serious mistake and that it simply was not meant to... to um, Sorry, <laughs> was not meant to live so fine. But as the years go by, the facade worn, the wood cracks here and there, and you start to love this house not so much for all the ways it is perfect, but for all the ways it is not. And there's a little bit more to that. But um, and then she ends it with, "That's all. That's it. All the little secrets that make it your home." And I just thought that was so beautiful because I think we often think that that's what is so great about love is the exciting things and the new things. And you always want to keep that spice and fire in your, your marriage or your relationship to keep things new and exciting. But ultimately that's not the best part about the love. It's about the, the everyday and the things that you can just count on and that, you know, and the things that you know so well in the other person that you wouldn't know if it was a new relationship. I do. I remember reading that passage now that you mentioned it and thinking, yeah, that's onto something there. That's a really cool analogy. It's not like, it's not like, you know, love isn't like moving into a, a, uh, brand new Miami beach condo. It's about moving into a house that you stay in for a long time and become so familiar with that you can appreciate all of the, all of the little things that you would not notice at first and all of the faults as well as all the, the nice things about it. Right. And you know it so well. And so therefore it feels like home versus a place that you don't know as well. And that just seems all shiny and fancy on the outside. Right. But yeah, what did you think of their love story? Because I know maybe it was the pod, the second podcast that you mentioned where they, they didn't like the love story because it didn't seem believable. Yeah. I, I really like the love story and I don't really understand when anyone criticizes a love story for not seeming believable because <laughs> I mean, because I've met so many couples who you would never think they would get together and right. it, and it works and they adore each other. So yeah, yeah I mean, maybe the, your average really bubbly person like Sonia would not go for someone like Ova, but Sonia was obviously not your average bubbly person. And totally adored Ova. And I think it was pretty clear throughout the book that Ova is actually a man of really strong character. 
And if there's if there's something that attracted Sonia to him, it was probably that. And Sonia similarly seemed like a person of very strong character and enormous personality. And it seemed like that was what attracted Ova to her. So I didn't really see any problems with plausibility of that love story. But I loved how the love story was unveiled. And it was done in the same style we talked about, the kind of back and forth between present and past. And obviously the love story is all in the past because in the present, Uva is a widower. But we just, we got little vignettes chapter by chapter of how their love developed. And they were quite clearly very committed to each other. And it was adorable. Yeah, I just loved that slow unfolding of their story. And um Friedrich Bachmann just reaching back into the past and giving us more and more information, kind of starting it off at this thin layer of relationship. Oh, they were married and she kind of kept him in line and then just piling on the details to result in this really thick and beautiful and dense relationship. I don't know. Those aren't the best adjectives, but you understand where I'm going with that. No, totally. Yeah. Um, I think there are two two more themes that we definitely need to talk about here, and those are themes of grieving and community. Yeah. So the first is grieving. Let's take this one first. Um, one of the things I loved about this book is that it explores how humans should deal with loss, and the community theme is is part of this, I think, because it ends up being that community can help you grieve. But um, the first question I guess we can ask is, is Ova grieving well? Yeah, I, I don't, at the beginning, I don't think so. He, he's kept up all of the pictures and everything is exactly the way it was when his wife died. And he's just kind of going through the motions and he hasn't found anything to kind of give, bring that color and happiness back to his life. And so he's just kind of wallowing in this sense of loss and inability to move on. Yeah. I think just as a general rule of thumb, if you are planning on ending your life out of grief, you're not grieving well. And I'm not, I'm not pointing the finger here because if I had lost my wife and my child as Uva did, I would feel like I had little if anything left to live for and I would probably be at least briefly tempted to do what he planned on doing. So I'm not blaming him for that, but I also think if I were in that position and I felt that way, I too would not be grieving well. And he doesn't want to talk about her at all, even when right. he gets to know Parvana and and she asks about him. He doesn't want to mention her name or talk about her. And I think that was another sign that he wasn't grieving well. And he, he, he leaves all of her things in the house as well, which are constant reminders and sort of stabs to his heart that she is gone. And he's withdrawn from all relationships that he had before. Not that he had that many before, but he's just withdrawn from even contact with other people. And I think... By doing that, he's completely lost all sense of his own life's worth, which is why he wants to to die. He just he thinks he has nothing. He, there's no point in him living. There's no purpose to his life anymore. It sounds like we're saying not only is he not grieving well, but he's grieving about as badly as you possibly could. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but then that's so, where the, the community comes in. And I, I like that you right. made that connection. 
Yeah, and so this is my favorite part of the whole book. So some people love the love story. I think that was your favorite, Sally. My favorite was the the story of the community rallying around Uva and Uva serving all the members of his community. So, Well, I love the love story, but I, I think I didn't say this, but what I was thinking was that my favorite relationship, I don't think it's actually between Uva and Sonia, but it's between Uva and Parvana because she is just a firecracker and I love her. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite relationship as well. I also like the relationship, the second, the runner-up will be the relationship between Parvana and her young daughter. Aww. For whom, well, yeah, I won't spoil it too much, but basically Ulva becomes a grandfather-type figure to Parvana's kids and one of her daughters especially. It's very, um, it's is moving. That was the most moving part of the book for me. But yeah, the, the community rallies around Ulva and it's really because of Parvana. She's the leader in this book, and she's the one who makes things happen. And yeah, she yeah, gets like him out Sally of his said, shell. Yeah, yeah, she really does, and it's it's really cool to see. And she gets him involved in everyone's lives in the community. It's it's really cool. But I think in doing so, the book demonstrates how other people can help us grieve, and how being open to people about our grief is cathartic and about how turning your energies outward rather than being totally introspective and um, pathetic in the, in the true sense of the word and just um, uh, sulking, I guess you can serve other people and make their lives better and yeah, work through your grief that way. It sounds, it sounds kind of cookie cutter. I'm not describing it very well. It's not like that is easy for Uva, and it's not like it would be easy for anybody. It's not just like, well, if you're grieving serious loss, just go do chores for your paper. And it's kind of um, he kind of takes one step forward, two steps back. Often, you think he's yeah. moving forward in his ability to relate to other people and to be open to life again, but but then the next day, you know, he's shutting the door in their faces. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, or he'll have a nice interaction with the annoyance, the cat, <laughs> and. Uh, then the next day he'll uh, almost be kicking him out the door. So, yeah, it's also, it's not neat and tidy. It's not, um, I don't know, this isn't like a Hallmark movie channel because these people's lives, not just Uva's, these people's lives are, are messy and complicated and um, they're, I mean, they're real people, right? It's like, they're, it's, this is a believable community, but it's in, it's engaging with each other that, they, I don't know. It's just like I guess their humanity comes comes through most fully in their conversations and dialogue and interactions with each other, and it's a really cool thing to see throughout the book. So, um, Patrick and Barbana have their two little girls, and they Patrick and Barbana fight sometimes, and Barbana has to go to the hospital with a medical scare, um, and uh, Rune down the street. Like I, like I mentioned, he has dementia, and his wife frets and worries about him, but loves him dearly. And the state tries to tries to take Rune away because they say Anita is no longer able to take care of him, and Uva has to intervene to stop that from happening. And the whole community ends up supporting him and doing that. And so there's, it just it just becomes, um, I think Rune in particular becomes a flashpoint over which the whole community can unite and engage with one another better. And it's really cool to see. So here's one dystopian future we can imagine where 
you know, the lawns are always perfectly manicured and the homeowners association has strict rules about how long your lawn can be and where and where you cannot drive your car. But when you get too old, the state comes and takes you away so that you can live in a, uh, you know, sanitized nursing home away from the rest of the world. But then there's this other future that Ova and his neighbors end up making a reality in which the neighbors rally together and have strong relationships that can protect those people and prevent the the state from intruding upon these most sensitive parts of life. Yeah. And I would say maybe that was the only, for me, that was the only part of the book that felt maybe a little cheesy was just how everybody is involved in Rune's salvation at the end, which this is a total spoiler for anyone who hasn't read the book, but I loved it. I loved it. I mean, I loved how the whole community rallied together. Um, but it did remind me a little bit of, um, of, yeah, maybe a, just a feel good movie, but it's, a, it's, it's ultimately a feel good book. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, it may be, that's a good point. I hadn't really thought of that before. It does maybe end a little bit a little bit tidily in that way. Um, it is almost like a, uh, you know what, it, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of a, um, uh, a modern family montage at the end of modern family, yeah. you know, that yeah. they're always, they're always the fights and disagreements in modern family. But then at the end, there's this like musical overlay where the theme music comes back and they're all and, hugging each other. <laughs> yeah. And one of, one of the characters pontificates about how family is family and we all love each other. And like everyone's, you know, all of a sudden getting along because someone started playing the modern family theme song. So yeah, it was a little bit like that. I agree. Uh, that's funny that you mentioned. But it didn't take away from the prof- other profound themes that we that we've talked about, um, and and I guess, well, I'm not sure where this fits in exactly, but I I just had this note that I wanted to add. Friedrich Bachmann said that he thought that everyone could relate to Uva and to the book as a whole because everyone at some point has experienced loneliness, and I thought that was just a really great point because you might look at it and think, oh, there's just this old Swedish man. How am I going to relate to him? He's lost his wife. He's way older than I am, you know, whatever the circumstance is. But we've all experienced some level of loneliness and and or loss. And I just would add to that that even if you haven't experienced the same depth of loneliness and loss that he has, that you probably have the fear of that. I mean, I definitely can't say that I've had quite the same experience of loss that Uva has, but I am very you know scared of the idea of losing someone who's that close to me so yeah for sure so i think in that way we can enter into his his situation and into his grief and and um and share in it well yeah and i think the um one of the the things one of the realities is that even if we haven't been in a position where we've lost a close loved one like that, everyone at some point in their life will be, or they will be the loved one who, who passes away. But, um, it's, you know, death is obviously a part of life and it's a matter of when and not if. Or maybe you're the neighbor, maybe you're Parvana who's, um, you know, in the prime of her life with young children, pregnant, you know, moving into a new house. And you have that neighbor who is just reclusive and cranky and mean. <laughs> and and so maybe in that way, you can appreciate the book and yeah. um, 
and find some inspiration from it because that definitely made me think. I mean, sometimes I think she almost edges on rude, but if she didn't push as hard as she did, then maybe Uva wouldn't have have ultimately responded as well as he did. So Right. Yeah. So that kind of made me wonder, you know, sometimes our society, just like social graces, we think we need to keep people at an arm's length unless they really open the door wide. But she literally was like banging down the door of his house. <laughs> yeah. In one instance, just to use his bathroom, which he did not appreciate. <laughs> right, right. Anything else we need to talk about from the book? Any other themes we missed or interesting things that struck us? I don't think so. Um, I guess one thing I would say is that sometimes the book kind of flirts with this idea of, you know, life has value if it has some sort of usefulness. And that's what Uva sees, thinks, at least initially. Um, and and I think it comes around to saying that it's not about, you know, your life doesn't have value just if you're useful because Uva does find great comfort in being useful to other people and being helpful to other people. But ultimately, Rune, he can't be helpful to anybody and he still has value and the whole community goes out of their way to help him even though he he doesn't have any, you know, useful value. So think and I hope that that's ultimately where the book lands is that every life has value regardless of whether or not you can be useful or helpful to people around you. No, I think you're right. I, that, that was definitely the message I got. And so Rune is one example of someone who Uva thinks is just totally useless. I think Patrick is actually another one because yeah. Patrick is a, <laughs> is a, you know, hipster. He's, this is Parvana's husband. Uh, this is a reminder. And he's a, hipster who doesn't do any manual labor. He has to have, he has to ask for Uva's help just to get a window unjammed at one point in the book. And Uva thinks, wow, this guy is so worth it. He can't even unjam a window. And so I don't think Uva ever realizes what Patrick does. And I, for, I forget, is he, he's a computer freelancer or something? So Yeah, tech. Yeah. So Uva, that means nothing to him. And he has no respect for someone who does computers. So in his mind, uh, Patrick is, totally useless but it doesn't doesn't stop him from eventually befriending him and his family so oh and the kids what usefulness to the kids you know the kids aren't useful right. in this right. way that uva sees it and yet he ultimately falls in love with them so yeah yeah so i think i think you're right uh but what's your final what's your final score for the book sally out of 10 okay out of 10 i would say a nine um and i kind of had trouble figuring out why i wasn't saying a 10 I think you captured it really well um maybe if you remember what you said but yeah I think a nine it's it's not a perfect book or anything and I guess the you know the maybe the little a little cheesy at the end maybe um maybe some repetitive vignettes a little bit here and there but but there's very little I can say negative about the book it was it was really heartwarming but not in a simplistic way and all of the characters were really compelling. So, and I, I loved his writing style. It was really, if he hadn't written it the way that he had Friedrich Bachmann, I, I don't think it would have been as compelling. I totally agree. Yeah. So nine out of 10. Yep. That's mm -hmm. pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would say, I would say I would put mine in the, um, 
8.5 to 9 range. I'll go with an okay. 8.5 since you went with a 9. Okay. So I docked it. I docked it a half point for the slight cheesiness at the end, which I didn't really think about until you brought it up now. But I think you're right. Just 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 a just a hint of cheese, not not, <laughs> not over the top. Just a hint. But at the same time, I don't. I wouldn't have wanted anyone to die at the end. So I guess I'm I'm glad that it. You know, everyone rallied and everyone stayed alive. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, just just a half point for cheesiness. And then uh, I dock it a full point because it doesn't explore metaphysics at all, which might sound kind of weird. But it's a it's such an it's such a beautiful work that explores our humanity, but it doesn't explore any possibilities of humanity's relationship with God. So it's. You know, there, there's no possibility of life beyond death that's acknowledged. And so there's no capacity for grief that takes into account hope, which I think is a big part of grieving. We, we didn't really talk about that when we discussed grieving, but I think that's a big part of how to grieve well is uh, having hope in, in something more Outside than this. Outside of and this so, world, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So because the book doesn't explore that at all, uh, there, I mean, there's really... To, to my recollection, there's not, not a even single a hint acknowledgement. Of it. Yeah, not even a hint. Yeah. yeah, and I think there should. I think there should have been that. Um, even even for someone who uh, doesn't believe in God, and obviously uh, I certainly do. Yeah, you might. You would think that that might some thought along those lines would come come up in Uva's mind. Right. I just. I think you need to acknowledge it because to me, it's not very real. Um, to not acknowledge that one of the, the deepest of the human impulses is not at work in the grieving process here. Well, and wasn't there, he did mention God earlier in the book. Didn't he say that after his parents died, he realized he had no use for God or something like that? And that was the last, oh, that's right. that was the last mention of God for the rest of the book. Yeah, that's right. So you would think that since he had some idea of God that maybe all of that grief, he would have come back to it in some way, even if it was just in anger. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, no mention of that. So I, I, that, no, that's, I think I had you... totally forgotten about that. That's, um, I guess, so I'll, I'll take back my words that it's never mentioned, but I will still stand by um, my claim that I think uh, it's, sh- I, I think it would have been good to watch Uva, I just did it, Uva <laughs> wrestle with this a little bit more, you know, rather than just casting off God as an outmoded, idea in his youth if he had returned and wrestled with it. And I don't, I, I'm not saying that he would need to um, end up believing in God, but I just think wrestling with that would be really good because so much of humanity wrestles with whether or not there is a God and what the character of God is if they do believe that he exists. So if, if Uva had done more of that or done it at all, I think that would have uh, put the book closer to 10 territory. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and that's actually a great segue into the third book for next month, what we're reading next oh. month. <laughs> the Power of Meaning by Emily Esfahani Smith. She talks about how we find meaning, and one of the sources of meaning is our relationship with the transcendent. So, um, It would also be a good segue to our fourth book, which is ah. on on humanity death and death and dying yep mm-hmm. yeah but we'll get to that that's being immortal by atul gawande so yeah we hope that you enjoyed a man called uva as much as we did and if you haven't read it then you should yes so a man called uve spelled 
O-V-E-O-V, by Friedrich Bachmann. If you uh, want to find out more about this, you can head to our website, which is vernacularpodcast.com, or to our blog at blog.vernacularpodcast.com. And probably read the book before you see the movie. I haven't seen the movie, but I really am, I don't think I want to because I'd be afraid that it would ruin all the characters for me. So yeah, this I is mean, just have, so have, character heavy that I think you need to read the book first. I totally agree. And I have such a good image of these characters in my mind that I don't really want corrupted by. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to our podcast. You can also check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacular podcast or on Twitter at vernacular pod or now Newly Sally was our newest platform on Instagram at <laughs> on vernacular Instagram. pod. Yes. So exciting. Uh, Sally's a big Instagrammer and I'm becoming more of an Instagrammer as time goes on. So we, uh, create an Instagram account and you can follow or find us there. And join us next month for The Power of Meaning. Join us next month for The Power of Meaning. We have two more book club episodes before we resume our regularly scheduled programming. So thanks for listening. And for Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. No